con su risa, que ha pasado por su casa, que ha venido porque quiere ser feliz. Good afternoon. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe, coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana. Uh, it's a cloudy day here out in, in Fishers, Indiana. It's a cool day, and we hope that you're enjoying good weather wherever you're at, and thank you for listening to our show, Tom's World Language Cafe, sponsored by UCCS, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and I would like to thank uh, Kyle, the station manager, the students and faculty there at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs for supporting our program and uh, also to Marge Mystery, who no longer is with us, who helped get this show started uh, some three years ago. And today, uh, listeners, we have a real treat for you because you're going to listen and uh, meet one of the most dynamic uh, Spanish teachers in the United States and one of the great Spanish teachers in the United States, uh, a former Indiana uh, Teacher of the Year for all disciplines not just Spanish, but all disciplines in, in 2006. And her name is Luisa Logrado, and she's a middle school teacher, soon to become a high school teacher, and uh, one of the most dynamic middle school teachers in the United States. And uh, Luisa, good afternoon. How are you? I'm fine. Good afternoon, Tom. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're so glad that you are able to be on the show, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show with us. I know the listeners are going to get a lot of insights into teaching and uh, a lot of um, motivational ideas as well. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, Luisa, about your school and um, your time that you spent at your school so far? How many years you've been sure. there? I'm, I'm at Westline Middle School, which is part of Washington Township, which is one of our MSDs in Indianapolis. And uh, we are one of three middle schools that feeds into North Central High School. Um, I've been at Westlane since 1994. So this is my 22nd year teaching middle school. But now I've also been a high school teacher before that. So I've been teaching for 26 years altogether. And then next year you're going to... I'm going to North Central. So I requested a transfer and it was granted. So I'm looking forward to an opportunity to teaching higher levels of Spanish than level one, but I will be doing level one as well, but with a different focus. Um, one thing to mention is that our district is the only international baccalaureate uh, school district in Indiana. And what that means for us is that we're doing an MYP program, middle years program for middle school and high school. So that's grades 6th grade through 10. We also have a PYP, which is primary years program, which is kindergarten through 5th grade. So with all of that impact, it's made more languages a huge thing for us in Washington Township. So next year, I'm going to be teaching level 1 students who are coming into a world language for the first time as ninth graders or um, those who are in their fourth year or third year excuse me third year of Spanish we already took it in the middle school so that'll be doing an accelerated program there with students who are ninth and tenth and eleventh grade well so you are busy right you yes never stop. <laughs> how many classes do you teach every day right now I teach six we teach on a block schedule so I see three a day so over the course of two days, I teach two sixth-grade classes, two seventh-grade, and two eighth-grade, which all put together comprise that of a level one high school program, and then some. Many of our students actually are very capable second-year students when they go into ninth grade. Now, tell me something about uh, your family um, uh -huh. and where you're from and uh, also about sure. uh, Tony. 
Um, okay, my husband. <laughs> yes. Very good. Well, I'm not from Indiana, so uh, my parents were born in New England. My mother's from Boston, and my father's from Hartford. So uh, my family background is actually Polish and Irish. And there isn't one other person that I'm aware of in my immediate family or extended family that speaks Spanish outside, outside of my husband, Tony. So um, knowing Spanish came all through my experiences in junior high and high school and then studying at IU. Tony, on the other hand, is from Indianapolis. So I met Tony Legrado when we were um, students at IU back in the late 70s, early 80s. So Tony's family background is Italian and Irish. So he didn't learn Spanish until he also got into uh, junior high and then continued in high school. And so our, our connection to the language is not through family, but through our experiences in education. Now, you uh, originally are from what, Cleveland, right? Um, I, oh, yes, I have. I say Cleveland is my hometown, but actually I've lived in six different states. I was born in Maryland when my father was in the military and in the Army in, in 1961, and I traveled quite a bit with my family. So we moved um, several times to Massachusetts because he was studying at Harvard there and MIT before that, and my mom's family was living in Boston. So, um, so my early years really are in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Then we moved outside of Philadelphia, and then we went to Chicago, then we went to Cookville, Indiana, then we went to Cleveland. So I, w I did my studies, my secondary studies, 7th grade through 12th in Shaker Heights, Ohio. So why do you teach Spanish? I, I, I think that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, why yeah. you must be totally motivated uh, to impart your knowledge of the language, etc. Sure. But is there some special things that really motivate you to do, teach Spanish? Definitely. Well, first of all, I went to college to be the best speaker I could be of Spanish and to read Spanish well, to study literature, to understand linguistics. But I did not go to college to become a teacher. I really just wanted to have a great humanities program while I was an undergrad in Bloomington. Um, but my experiences through the junior year uh, abroad in Madrid changed my life as far as who I was as a person and how social I was with individuals. And as my Spanish improved, um, I really enjoyed sharing with others how easy it is to learn Spanish if you put the dedication and time into it. So when I was living in Madrid, uh, to make some money on the side, I was teaching English as a foreign language to Madeleños. So that started to make me think, plus Tony was with me in that second uh, year that I was in Madrid to encourage me that maybe I had some career in mind that would be, include teaching. But teaching didn't happen until like 1990, and I graduated in 83. So it took me seven years in my master's before I even decided that to become a teacher. But um, for me, it's about relationships. I love to talk to people, and I thought if I'm going to do this thing that does it well with relationships, teaching was a great avenue for me. Now, this all has to do a lot with, the, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're in agreement with this, but I'll ask you anyway. Sure. Uh, but we taught you, you mentioned about this social contact. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really important in learning languages, right? And I, and I think the big challenge we have today with technology is how can we bridge the gap between the impersonality of, of the technology versus mm -hmm. live human beings when you see each other and exactly. you interact? Is it, would you agree to that or not? Definitely. In fact, I, I find it more challenging as I teach middle schoolers who are also trying to become proper social human beings because they are definitely struggling with proper yeah. eye contact, 
face-to-face contact when we're speaking Spanish, how we use our hands, because they're so used to their phones. They're used to texting everybody. They're used to social media commentary. They're not necessarily face-to-face. So when we get them in the classroom and start practicing basic communication skills in Spanish, I have to teach them how to be comfortable with themselves face-to-face and how we behave together. Now, what one of the issues facing uh, people that I talk to in business, and I always like to just kind of find out what's going on in business, in the business world. And many times I hear the same thing you just said. They, the graduates, the college graduates, they arrive for the job interviews and things, and they can't communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, one-on-one, face-to-face, they're so used to pulling their phones out and uh, you know, their iPads and doing their things. And uh, so what do you think we need to be doing in education for this problem? And it is a problem. And I, sure. and I, I, I know I'm, I, you love technology. I love technology and everybody probably does, <laughs> but it has its, it has its limitations. And especially yep. when you're learning a language, you know, it, it, it's so imperative that we, that we, communicate live because obviously like you were in Madrid you you know many times you've been in Madrid and and every place else uh, many Spanish-speaking countries but as as you know when you get there uh, people you can't talk live using your phone you have to you know you have to talk you can't go in and buy you know buy some tapas and Madrid appetizers in the restaurant and just use your phone you have to actually see the people and do things so um, what's, where are we headed with that? Do you think that we're on the right track or, or do we need to really have a better track of what we're trying to do teaching? And, sure. and not just in languages, I suppose, but it, it becomes a universal topic, yep. I'm sure. Well, that's a big question, Tom. And I think that for me, when I was looking at some of the questions you asked me to consider, technology for me helps me do classroom management, It helps me to manage my curriculum, manage my information that I'm going to later use in a face-to-face situation with my students. If I ask students to do a project, they're going to use the technology to find as much Mm -hmm. resources as they can out on the Internet or through other pieces of literature that we might find to use and then become social back in the classroom. Um, Any final product, uh, when we look at our criteria and our standards, whether it's ACTL standards or it's standards for IB's program, we have to help the kids understand it's a set of language skills that I need to assess, not how they researched it, but what are they gonna do with that information? That means they have to practice the speaking, the reading, the writing, and the listening that goes on in the classroom on a day-to-day basis. And if you don't teach the students how to cooperate, how to work in groups, how to practice doing the language through those variety of uh, skill sets, they're not doing anything. And um, when the phones come out or they're walking around with them stuck in their back pocket and their earbuds are hanging out of their ears and they're around their neck, they're not connected. You know, they're connected yes, to the thing yes. that's not truly teaching them how to be a social right. human being. So we, we struggle with that. But at the same time, I think as a teacher goes, when you're working with teaching a kind of a content like Spanish, more languages is, for me, one of the best avenues for teaching students how to understand that relationships matter. Um, the content I'm going to give you is relevant and that I give you a kind of rigor like you've never seen before. And those are my three R's. And I will tell that to anybody when we're talking about personal relationships with colleagues, with students and our families. Do, do you have that relationship intact and do you care? 
Do you care about what you're saying? Do you have the information that you wish to impart to others? And you're going to model what you ask of them to do too. So I always believe in the modeling method. You can't do that faking it on a computer. You have to do that live. Now, in education, and I know Mm -hmm. your school is a very typical school, um, middle-class school, right, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, up and lower. Up and lower, middle class. everything. Yeah, now, economically, this – do you see a difference between economic levels within the classroom that it affects sure. learning? Uh, yes. You know, we hear this in public education a lot. You know, these are the main, the really major problems. Mm-hmm. You know, how can in across the United States, uh, how do exactly. we how do we bridge the gap? Then how do we bring all these kids into the learning process? And I know nobody does it better than you. I've seen you teach, you. and I know nobody I can think of that does half as good as you do. But you're able to do that. How do you do that? I mean, what yeah. kind of activities do you use in your classroom, for example, sure. to bridge well, the gap? As far as bridging a gap, if we're going to do any work that requires the use of a laptop or an iPad, I have to make sure that all the opportunities for that practice and learning happen in school. I cannot make the assumption that all my students have all of those devices at home. I never make that assumption because I know the economic background of many of my students. It's much different than it was, say, 15, uh, 20 years ago here in this part of Washington Township. So when we plan, we have to truly strategically figure out where are the resources, where are the laptop carts, where are the iPads, and how am I going to balance my needs with other staff members and then decide, is it super important that those devices be a part of the learning process? Yes, it is sometimes. But most of my real work in learning the language is the face-to-face. And when it comes time to getting to the bigger part of the world and we're taking on a theme like La Hispanidad and how do we understand La Hispanidad and how can we get connected with other communities, that's when we need the devices so we can stretch further. But I'm going to keep those as classroom events. I want to make sure everybody sees the same thing I see. Um, When they're in their smaller groups and they've been given an assignment to study a famous Hispanic artist, performer, musical, art, whatever we want. Um, they will be able to be in the media center. And we're going to make sure that every day of planning, that they work together, that they're using those devices because I know they can. And if they have them outside of class, that's great too. But I have to make sure that our common denominator is that all resources are available to all students when we truly are working on that project together. I cannot expect that to happen at home for all people without me being there. I think I know the answer to this because I've seen you <laughs> teach before. But, <laughs> so, but I'm going to ask. Okay. Yeah. And that, that is, uh, when you are teaching, you, I suppose you use a variety of group situations, right? Pair work, uh, small groups, all kinds of structure. Yeah. So yep. what's your favorite modem of the, the way to deliver class that you think is the most effective? Absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a combination. I learned this from you, Tom. <laughs> you start the class with students as leaders. And I have students who have been trained, actually all the students have been trained, to get the class going through um, regular um, administrative assistant type jobs. So I have different students who are taking care of our attendance, our um, what's on the agenda for today, what are our learning objectives, 
Um, then we have the warm-up person, which is called the animador, who literally is our cheerleader. So we have a different cheerleader every day who comes up and works on the continuary questions that we're trying to master and focus on for that particular month. And then I have students who are taking notes as secretaries for our absent students and other students who are in charge of distributing all the material, collecting all the material, whatever we need. So basically, I just facilitate this scenario. And I would say in a 40 excuse me, in an 83-minute class period right now, I might instruct as sage on the stage for about 10 to 15 minutes. The rest of the time, it's what students are doing through my guidance students, as they yeah. work together. Student-centered learning to the max, yeah. right? Yeah. Trying, yes. trying to make it happen. Student-centered yes. learning, the kids involved, hands-on, and yep. that's when kids love learning, you know? I mean, it, it really is. I mean, that's, yep. that's the learning that becomes really dynamic and important to the kids and I know you do it better than anybody and uh, and I still do it in, in, at the college level uh, it's a little tougher there because uh, because you know you're in competition with people who love to lecture and mm -hmm. necessarily their classes aren't very student centered uh, right. but uh, and I miss what you're saying I remember I used to do that some of it brought back a lot of memories, and I. But it, it the student-centered part is the the great part of teaching, right? And right. and that that really makes it become live. And uh, what about the teachers in society today? The role of the teacher. Uh, do you see it as being a lot different than it was five years ago, ten years yes. ago? Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> and well I, again, I where I'm teaching. Uh, yeah. Our, is not just um, the teacher, but we are. We often act like a social worker, a counselor, um, a friend, uh, carefully, but as you know, one that supports the um, the other side of the child who's coming into school. Whether they've got great problems, they need attention, and we've got to find the right person to help them. Um, we're mediators, um, and I, you know, I think what's been a real challenge for me, um, but I love it, is the amount of parent contact I've had to increase in my daily practices and making sure that parents know, especially students who are struggling, you know, where they are with me and how they're improving. Um, I have a regular set of parents who contact me every week to know how their child's doing because they know they haven't been doing well. Um, I've got several right now who are in great great um, struggle of possibly failing the course and we'll have to repeat again next year and trying really hard to not let that be the case. And, um, and it's, it's woken up a few kids' eyes to the reality that in more languages, you need to pass. And if you're not passing, you will repeat the same program next year with a bunch of students younger than you. And that's that in, in a middle school setting, that's devastating. They don't want that. So I'm trying very hard, other kinds of strategies to help those kids know I care very much about them, the way I greet them at the beginning of the day. So, you know, I'm a greeter. Um, I'm the one that's cleaning up after them. I'm making sure their binders are organized. I'm making sure they know what's on the agenda. They understand how to read an agenda. I'm helping the parents learn how to read those agendas, helping them understand what our homework hotline is. Do you even know we have those resources? And so, yeah, there's a lot more involvement for me personally with family members than I've ever seen before. Plus, seeing multiple kids and generations, I'm getting the children of children I had 20 years ago now. So that's wild. That <laughs> so I wild. see how much their need, the need for kids and their connectedness to why they care about us. And students really do care about their teachers as much as their own friends in the school. So if you had to say your three favorite activities for teaching, what would you call mm -hmm. What would those be? 
Um, for me, favorite activities is watching students start class. I love it when I can step back and have my own time to meet one-on-one with kids because I have a group of students, and this is a rather large group of students, who can run the routine of the class for those first 15 minutes. So, so I love that. So it's peer teaching, right? Peer teaching, yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Great, great, great stuff, yeah. And I would say the next thing I think I enjoy is teaching novels, especially the small ones when kids are just learning how to put sentences together. So when we're um, getting ready to understand the first chapter, the second, the fifth chapter, I'm always looking for um, provocational questions to get them thinking about Uh that chapter. We'll look at every hint or code on the page on the book to help them understand, especially with the uh, younger readers. There's always a picture or two in every Uh chapter of a book that we might be doing um so i really like getting um them physically involved we do some uh, total physical response when we try a reading the tprs and that's great because the kids start to understand and feel i love um that when students can reenact in their own words what they just read so i ask the students to dr- dramatically reenact what they understand and put the language in their own words uh-huh. so i think I enjoy that it was super i love the novel part uh what about the um uh travel idea that mm-hmm. uh, taking students abroad and getting students to go all, um, outside of this narrow existence yes. that they have because in many schools I think around the country the kids tend to stay in the same city the yep. same state some of them believe it or not I know I used to have students that they hardly ever left the state you know the, the state they would stay in the same area their whole life Mm-hmm. And uh, do you see that at your school, some, or not as much? Yeah. Um, well, we have students from all walks of life come through Washington Township. So um, in our building in particular, in fact, we just made our first very successful attempt to take a group of students, uh, 7th and 8th graders, last year to Madrid. And the, the next year we're going to be doing it with Madrid and Paris. And what it takes is to help um, ch- children who have been outside the state of Indiana or are used to the idea of moving in vehicles, especially airplanes, trying to help a kid to understand if you can fly to Georgia or you can fly to Florida or New York, you can fly to Europe. And so we were very successful. We had um, about 25 people who went on this trip with us last spring, over spring break. And we've done it to China. And we've had uh, many, many years of success taking students to Quebec um, in a different mode of capacity with the French program. But what's been great about it is that Um, It's not only the students with money that go on these trips. And um, if we find a great interest in a family, our Westlane family, our staff are very good about helping make the budget uh, happen for those families who have not as many resources to take their child on a trip. And for me, for a long time, I was really sensitive to that idea about running programs where I knew only the wealthiest families could attend because I really wanted kids who don't get those opportunities to be on these trips as well. And I think we're finally finding now um, if you start a trip early enough, the students can start planning and learn how to save. And that whole concept of saving money to take a trip, uh, the kids are ready to go. I was amazed at the number of kids who were so excited about going to Spain last year and want to go back. Um, so it's about, you know, how do you meet the financial need? Because in middle school, it's it, you want those trips to be meaningful and you want to make sure the kids mature enough to be able to appreciate the travel abroad at this age, especially. So, what are your two favorite uh, Spanish-speaking countries to visit? One of them, obviously, must be Spain, right? 
And what are the other ones then? Well, I would probably say Puerto Rico because I'm very, and it's, you know, one of our own territories. I'm passionate about Puerto Rico because I have a lot of uh, connections and my husband and I spent our honeymoon there. But obviously I would say Mexico as far as my second country. I have the most experience in Spain and Mexico. And as you know, because I um, spent some really cool times with, in San Luis Potosí with our, our teachers program that you have sponsored with us in the past. And um, in all of my, my travel between these two nations, which I really love having the experience of both Spain and Mexico, because our students, many of our students' families are of Mexican heritage. And so I, I love it when I can talk to them about my time that I've spent there when I actually live in the home and I'm reading a book and it talks about Mexico I can make those connections um, to the kids personally about what I've done um, but I'm beyond also just only looking at Spanish-speaking countries. I look at romance languages. I've you know, been to France. I've been to Romania. I've been to Portugal. The only country I haven't been to and I hope to do soon is Italy um, and as an important language connection to the Latin roots that we all share. So, yes, I'm sure you will love Italy. <laughs> the, the, the part that when uh, Jill and I uh, finally made it over there four or five years ago, and the part that amazed me was, uh, you know, uh, St. Peter's and, the, you know, the, the popes being buried there and all the, sure. the Christianity thing. It was just astounding yeah. with, with the religious part and, and the Renaissance. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, it, it is a special, special place. Um, the, um, what about this, um, I know you've had students who've been really, really good in the past, right? And <laughs> now... What are your, who are your three favorite students? Do you have three favorites? Oh, oh at least. Yeah, just three. <laughs> this the just one. the top three, but the ones the that, and what, okay. and what well, they're the doing three. today. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope it's okay to mention their names because they Absolutely. are very. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, the first uh, student I'm going to mention is someone that I had in uh, Monrovia High School when I was teaching first uh, my first four years. Her name is Jill Warner, and she's now our new world language consultant um, in education, the Department of Education. And uh, she was um, she it was a fantastic student as a high schooler. Um, got into all of the activities that we did with Columbus and writing to Christopher Columbus's. Puerto Rico, I'll always remember that activity we did, and she got a response from a lawyer whose name was Christopher Columbus, and just got the most amazing, you know, letter connection, and her time, she went to Purdue, and that's okay, even though I'm an IU grad, but she came out thinking she was first going to be in sciences, and discovered a love for Spanish through her time with us in Monrovia and then at Purdue. She went to Madrid, did the Wisconsin-Indiana-Purdue program, then decides to change her major and become a Spanish teacher. So Jill um, was one of my student teachers in 1999, I believe, and now she is where she is today. And she's yeah. got an administrator's license. She's got a Spanish high school license. I mean, she's taught in all levels. So she's one of my rock stars that I feel very yeah. fortunate to have had in my classroom. She certainly had a great impact on her. And she's yeah. a wonderful person yeah, as she well. Is. Just a great person. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm glad you brought her up because I, I need to have her on the show. You do. But, yes. <laughs> I'm going to definitely exactly. get a hold of her. She, we we her <laughs> she's, right. she's just coming back from Madrid. But two other people I'd like to mention are actually in the same family. Um, actually, uh, I one of the families I got to meet in the early 1995-96 um, was the last name Holloway family. There's five children in that family. And um, Veronica and her sister Olivia 
were exceptional students because they were coming from a homeschool environment, came right into West Lane, assimilated so nicely to the culture, and loved Spanish class. And um, uh, Veronica graduated um, from North Central, studied Spanish all the way through, went to college at IU, and later um, studied in business and did a minor in Spanish. And so now she manages different um, restaurants and works very, very closely with her staff who speak a lot of Spanish. But Olivia, her younger sister, impressed me because um, she was so good at Spanish. She also took French in high school. And then when she went to IU, she majored in Spanish and in Portuguese. And her love for Portuguese was so strong. Um, she spent some time in Brazil doing an exchange program there, met her future husband, and now she speaks fluent Portuguese, has a family wow. that's now living in Brazil as well as the United States. And so to see these students just blossom and make their whole life about the language is pretty awesome for me. Um, there are others, too, that work for La Plaza, and I've had the great fortune to um, do some community service projects with my students, knowing that former students from West Lane were either social workers or educators themselves who now work with La Plaza Incorporated here in Indianapolis, which I think is pretty cool, too. Well, we're certainly fortunate that you're <laughs> teaching and that you're still teaching. And uh, yes. that which brings me to the next question, uh, kind mm -hmm. of a political question, but not really political, political, okay. but... What about the young teachers coming up today? Um, is, there, is there salary good enough, do you think? Is there working conditions okay? Uh, is tenure non-existent anymore? I guess it is, right, in Indiana? Uh, tenure doesn't exist. No. As uh, in the way it used to. No. If you are a person of my number of years of teaching, um, I could lose my job if I do something foolish tomorrow, which I'm not going to do. Right. Uh, but there's not the safety network that we would say gave you the tenure. You have no worry about being first person fired, hired, that kind of thing. Um, for me, what I really would say about the young person coming in education is they better really have a passion and a vocation in line. They have to love this job because this job is extremely hard. And you have got to have a real reason to be an educator, not just because you're an expert at your content area, but you love people. If you can't communicate with a variety of people and if you can't relate to diversity, um, if you can't accept you might be a minority in the own school that you work in, you have got to understand you will be with a lot of people who are not like you. And if you don't love that idea, you shouldn't be teaching. No. And then consider your expertise in your content area, of course. I think students um, who are thinking about a career as teachers are going to probably see themselves in more than one teaching setting. I think the idea of those of us who have been staying in the same building for decades <laughs> is not going to be the same kind of career, I think, down the road. It's going to be harder probably to entice a person to want to stay in the same building for decades because, um, yes, the financial part of it is different. And that security isn't described in the same way or prescribed in the same way as it was before um, the Barack Obama administration and, and he's got nothing to do with that problem but it's just the way we see our associations for teachers and that's yes. a real shame because our teacher associations around the country have done an awful lot to make public school education in particular an extremely good place to be a teacher and now a lot of us do feel like we're not always respected the way we should well, be respected. Totally, I totally agree and I would say further <laughs> that we need to think about uh politically, and I don't know how it's going to come about, but hopefully uh, there'll be a, a, some evolution to this that 
uh, we will start paying teachers more money. We will start treating them with greater respect for all of how hard this job is. Yeah. And it's a hard job, and I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Uh, it's a tremendously challenging, difficult job. And if, if we can think of ways to improve it, uh, mm -hmm. we have to start doing something. Because yeah. we, were, we are not, I don't believe we will keep attracting really good people. Uh, if, if the pay doesn't get better, if, exactly. if the working conditions don't get better, if uh, we don't get enough positivity going about about language learning and teachers and all disciplines, and I don't know what the answer is, but it's it's yeah. one of our major problems in this country, uh, and because education is the most important thing going, and yeah. we have to start treating it with the respect that it deserves. It, as you just said, and and I think that's that goes without saying, but it doesn't seem to take place, you know, for whatever right. reason. We seem yeah. to get bogged down in all these, um, uh, you know, who's to blame for the problems of, of students not learning, you know. Is, yeah. it, is it the teacher or is it the family, whatever. But right. uh, we, we get into those type things. Which brings me to the next question about discipline or classroom management. Mm -hmm. uh, what about that today? Do you think that it's as good as it was five years ago? Is it more difficult, the discipline? Uh, how would you classify that? I mean, what would you? Well, you know, I, <laughs> discipline and classroom management have got to be an aspect of a teacher's um, toolkit and how they're going to approach what they care about in the way students behave. You can, I, I, you can take a child who is absolutely a terror in one person's classroom, but if you show that person the kind of respect they need and they come into your classroom, they can be a perfect angel. So to me, sometimes I think what happens is we need to get to know kids and where they're coming from as fast as you can. And that's a challenge. We have six classes and you may have up to 30, 35 students in a class. But uh, brings <laughs> but back a lot of memories. To do something to figure out <laughs> yes. what matters most in your room. And you're going to lay down those ground rules for those kids first and foremost. And you will practice, practice, practice what it means to follow that community. Because kids will start to see that if you have that rigor and that same consistency with the rules for all the kids in your classroom, they start to understand first that you don't um, have favorites and that you do care about every child being a successful person. And that's why it takes so much work because to me, I also feel that what makes a classroom run well as far as just the kids are going to come at you all the time with whatever baggage they bring, good or bad. I can't control that. All I can do is control the way we're going to manipulate the uh, material, the content, and our experiences in the classroom. I can't control a child's behavior. They're going to do whatever they want. But when they come into my room and they understand there's an air of respect, that we practice our essential agreements, we say them every day, and every grade level has their own essential agreements, and we say them in English or in Spanish, depending on their level. They need to make commentary on that. When the kids start to hear that tone and that repetition of that tone happens every single day, they know I'm a place of business, and they're learning how to be a part of that place of business. And to me, that has to be the teacher's focus. How do you do that? And frankly, in middle school, for me, what, I, what I've loved about this is I see the kids needing that structure. And I, and I feel my expertise all this time has been I have an, a really good handle on managing structures and then allowing the kids to learn now, and blossom from those structures. How many students do you teach every day? 
Um, every day, it, hmm, <laughs> that's a good number. I think I have about 160 on my roster most of the time. So about half of that each day. So so it is, is it the block schedule then? It's block schedule. Yes, yeah, so that's why it's hard for me to count them up. And each each one color day might have more students. I have a blue-white schedule. So my blue oh. days, I have more students yeah. in those classes than I do my white days. So um, they range <laughs> yeah. anywhere from 18 to 26 right now. So I'm pretty fortunate. But I did start at the beginning of the year with 36 and 35 in my sixth grade classes. And I had almost 30 in each of my seventh grade classes. And I had about 20 five in my eighth grade classes so the numbers would get smaller now to for the listeners who do not teach yeah and, and one of the things that happens here is not only is louisa teaching all day but then she has to grade papers and she has to plan her lessons etc right. etc so this teaching job is really non-stop basically right yeah. i mean that's correct it goes on and on and on it really wow. does and that's why when louisa said the teachers have to love this, and they do. You have to love this because, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's. It, which brings me to my next question: What are your hobbies? Do you have time to do some fun things? <laughs> <laughs> when I have time, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I love the cinema, so I'm always looking for a great film, an independent film, an international film. Um, I love to travel when I'm not <laughs> here in, the, in Indianapolis. Um, I would say, and, and when I'm closer to my home, I absolutely love um, uh, gardening and doing exterior yes. um, designs. And I always uh, see your me. pictures on Facebook. Your garden yes. is astounding. The <laughs> listeners, uh, Louisa has this beautiful garden. And uh, she they, also tell the listeners about your, your little uh, maison in the basement, yes. right? We've gone through a couple of renovations, but our, um, from the first to the, the second one, we completely changed our basement. Right now it's got a blue-white Colts feel to it, but the blue and white colors are very common in the Mediterranean communities. And so it's mimicking um, what it's like to go down into the ground and have your cafe bar area, like many Maisonas, if you think of the Maisonas in, in uh, Old Madrid. And, um, and it's decorated in stucco finish with ter- um, terraza um, tiles. And um, and in one of my rooms in particular, it's like a salon de arte. So I've taken all kinds of reproductions. I of my love that. Things. I saw that on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Those beautiful <laughs> and they're all hanging on the wall with that all is, my photographs. That is lovely. <laughs> uh, the um, so what about um, when you studied? Who was your favorite uh, teacher in high school and your favorite professor in college? The sure. ones that it really inspired you. Absolutely. Well, in, in high school, in Shaker Heights, um, uh, senior high, I was enthralled with a, in, a individual. His name is Antonio Otero. He was originally from Puerto Rico, and his family moved to Cleveland in the 1950s. Um, but just a fantastic um, educator and truly motivated me to do the advanced placement program, um, to read literature with an incredible, incredible critical eye and teach me about narrative, narrative voice and these are things that I never even was picking up clearly in my English classes. He got me to see it in Spanish. So Antonio Otero, for sure, and he did his graduate work at IU and helped me and convinced me to go to IU to do my undergraduate studies in Spanish. And my, I have one relative, my only relative, which was my grandfather, who was from Hammond, Indiana, had gone to IU to study medicine. And so through his influence and Antonio Otero's influence to go to IU, I got early acceptance my senior year and just knew I'd be going to Bloomington. Mm-hmm. So when I got to Bloomington, one of my favorite professors, I mean, there are 
many wonderful professors in Bloomington would be Dan Quilter. And Dan Quilter just set my eyes on fire to things about my dream. And I will always remember two courses that I took from him when I was a grad student. Uh, one was his Don Quixote, his whole thing on Cervantes, one semester of just nothing but looking at that novel. Absolutely adored the way he approached the novel. And also his applied linguistics class, which I had to take as a graduate. So he gave a ton more work to us grad students. But learning how to analyze the grammar and make it real for kids. He has put out some wonderful material about applied linguistics and how to teach Spanish as a secondary teacher. And I just thought, wow, that man had an amazing brain and really helped us to um, analyze language from the real sense of speaking language when you're in a community and understand why things work through that experience. And I never saw that in other grammar classes that I took at IU or in high school. So Dan Quilter for sure. Um, yeah, one of my he, he was uh, my son's favorite uh, professor at IU as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And for the listeners, my son Dan is a Spanish professor at Franklin College, and uh, he studied at IU as well. But his uh, favorite professor was Dan Quilter as well. Dan was also an outstanding individual, a person. Yes. And uh, he was one of my favorites, along with Russ Salmon. Russ was another. Sure. Uh, but we were very fortunate to be around people like that, you know, that yes, were sure. so dedicated and gifted in what they did in, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, like so um, what is your, um, what's your plan for this summer? Are you going to rest or are you traveling? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, both. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to do some domestic travel um, just to get away as soon as the school year is done, which will be shortly in three and a half weeks. Um, I have some favorite spots in Georgia, so I'm hoping to go to Jekyll Island, Georgia um, for about a week. But my big exciting plan, I haven't even told Tony this yet because I haven't been able to get the final details, but I have a cousin in Connecticut and her daughter is at Bryant University in Rhode Island who is going to be studying in Salamanca. So she's got a five-week week uh, stint in La Universidad de Salamanca, and she wants to go to Spain before that program begins at the end of June. So she and her mother, who's my cousin, Judy, uh, the three of us are going to go to Madrid and go oh, and wow. take some travel time between Madrid and Salamanca for about 10 days. So that'll be in, in the last half of June. So I'm really looking forward that'll to that. That'll be great. Fun. That will be awesome. Yeah, that will be <laughs> super. Listen, yeah. Louisa, I think that we are about the uh, running out of time here. So um, I would like to thank you profusely so much for being on the show. It's a great honor to have you on the show. Uh, Luisa, as I said, is one of the, the decorated, most decorated Spanish teachers of all time and, and <laughs> has done about everything except she's going to have a little more challenge in high school now. So. Yes, yeah, <laughs> she wants that. So good, good for you. It's, it's like, you know, another little career here, right, that you're adding. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, so thank you so much for being on the show. And I know the listeners got a world of ideas out of this, and uh, they're going to enjoy when they hear the program. And for all the listeners, thank you for be listening and taking time to hear our show. And uh, we will be uh, back soon with some more guests and uh, another new show coming up very soon here. And then in June, for the listeners, we will be doing a show for live from Havana, Cuba. So we're going to be doing a show from Havana this June for just to get everybody ready. Uh, so uh, we were getting excited about that. Um, 
Thank you again, Louisa, and have a great <laughs> evening, and I hope that you get some rest tonight. So. I hope so, too. <laughs> it, it takes time to get some rest, all right? Sounds good. All right. Thank Thanks you so much. So much. Bye. Thank you. Hasta pronto. Nos vemos. Bye. Hello.